After months of speculation, the government last week announced details of a plan to open protected conservation areas, including at least one national park, to mining. The Prime Minister John Key says he understands public concern and has vowed to allow only environmentally sensitive mines. But how small an impact can a mine make to a wilderness area, and how likely is it that the new mines will be underground and out of sight? In this Insight program, Radio New Zealand's environment reporter Ian Telfer travelled to the South Island's west coast to find out. Just behind a hill off one of the west coast's main inland highways, large yellow trucks groan their way out of a growing hole. A ridge which used to divide two narrow valleys isn't here anymore. It's been dumped, truckload by 90-tonne truckload, a few hundred metres away. This is the Oceana Gold Mine at Reefton, which opened three years ago on a piece of state-owned conservation land, the Victoria Forest Park. I'm being taken on a tour by the company's chief operating officer, Mark Cadzo. Last year, the mine crushed, shifted and processed 13 million tonnes of rock to release about two tonnes of gold. That flotation process, and then there's a filter building over there where we just filter the minerals off and then just goes into a uh, transport and gets transported to the crates. So it's quite a uh, simple process here. Big investment? Uh, yes. Probably on this site, all up, we've invested well over $100 million. With gold not far below its record price of $1,200 US an ounce, the money spent here was recouped in just one year of production. And there's plenty more where that came from. This whole area, about uh, 20 kilometres that way and about 20 kilometres that way, is all uh, one large gold field. And in principle, there's no reason why you couldn't go? Uh, no. Both directions? No. Back in the office, I ask Mark Cadzo how a modern gold mine works. Most of the gold that we recover here is in sulphide minerals, so it's microscopic, and so it wasn't recovered by the old timers. We're using new techniques and new technology to get the gold out. And it's in, what, fairly low concentrations in the rock? Uh, yes, around about two to three grams per tonne, so two or three parts per million, so it's quite low grade. And in practice, then, how do you get it out? First we mine it, and then we put it into our processing plant, so we crush it up, uh, so that we get individual particles of either sulphides or other materials and then we collect those sulphide minerals into a concentrate and then we take that concentrate to McRae's where we would further process it and get the gold out. The setup at Reefton shows how radically mining has changed with new technology. The mine's already spread over a significant area. It has four pits and is about two kilometres long and one kilometre wide, covering 200 hectares. But the operation most often cited as being the shining light of 21st century extraction is about 50 kilometres from here, and it doesn't mine gold, but coal. The Pike River mine is underground and located in the forest at the foot of the Paparoa Ranges. And part of the coal seam it's mining is buried deep beneath the Paparoa National Park. It's likely it's this type of mining that the Prime Minister John Key has in mind when he says only environmentally sensitive mining will get the go-ahead on high-value conservation land and national parks. Modern mining techniques give us lots of options, and that's a surgical incision in the land. Now, uh, I think that's going to give us options that we haven't previously had, and I think we should go away and look at that. The idea of surgical incisions, akin to keyhole surgery on the body, makes mining on conservation land seem more palatable. 
But how realistic is it? Pike Rivers mine manager Peter Whittle says for his mine, the metaphor is apt enough. Being an underground mine with Dock Estate sitting on the surface, we've put a tunnel two and a half kilometres up into the side of the mountain and we're doing all of our work from underground. There's very, very little surface footprint. Uh, We have very little surface impacts other than remote impacts from subsidence. And we, we go in there, we extract a certain amount of coal, we leave a large amount of coal behind because we need to support the roof and make sure it doesn't fall in and make sure that the place has got a minimum impact. And then we retreat out of there, close up the tunnels pull all the roads up at the end of the day, and we're gone again. So from a surgical, uh, using that analogy, it's not the same as open-heart surgery. It's more like keyhole surgery. So small scars, not large scars. Exactly right. But scars that go away over time, and with the right work being done at the time, it's hopefully like a, a plastic surgeon's scar. Pike River has complex and stringent access agreements with the Department of Conservation. The environmental considerations are one reason it took at least eight years before the mine could get its first shipment of coal away last month. It's very hard to compare us to an open-cut mine who, by the nature of the business, has to take off a lot more ground cover and open up the ground. From an underground mining perspective, however, our footprint's very small. We've managed to get an access road about eight kilometres up through the Dock Estate, uh, only about 20 metres wide, and it's only the pavement area or the actual clean area is only about nine metres wide. And we've had individual approval from Doc to take each tree out that we've taken. We've had to zigzag the road around old trees. Some of these old growth trees are quite majestic and therefore we've had to put in extra effort to put those roads in. The biggest difference is we've really just developed this in the 21st century with full knowledge of Doc's requirements and we've taken from day one that that's just expected of us and that's what we've done. Forest and Bird rejects the idea of mining in protected conservation areas, even the underground type. Kevin Hackwell is the Environmental Group's spokesperson. Most of the minerals which they're after are in such low concentrations that the modern mining technique is actually open-cast mining. Um, We'd be very surprised that the government can say to the minerals industry, go in there and do boutique mining and only make a little hole in the hill, etc. It's unlikely to happen. And even if they made a little hole in the hill, what they've got to do is they've got to extract the ore. The ore's going to be in low concentrations, so they're going to have to crush it up that crushed rock is going to end up in a tailings dam nearby. So even if the hole in the hill is relatively small, there's going to be this huge footprint. There always is with modern mining techniques. Even if you don't do open-cast mining, which is actually more than likely what's going to happen, even if you manage to do, in some places, a hole in the hill, there will be this massive footprint from the tailings dam, from the waste rock that they have to take out of that hole. Um, So these things aren't about surgical tiptoeing and tiptoeing out. They don't happen. And you'll see that at Pike, huge road up through this beautiful valley, big infrastructure to do that. And there's all the, the, the overburden that has to come out, you know, the, the rock they've had to pull out of the, the ground to make the hole, and then there's going to be all the issues around that. So it doesn't work that way. There are already 82 mines operating on Department of Conservation managed land. They range from gravel to gemstones, and many are open cast but they're generally not on the most precious 40% of Dock's land where mining is forbidden under a section of the Crown Minerals Act called Schedule 4. This so-called Schedule 4 land includes all national parks, marine parks, ecological reserves and island sanctuaries, in total making up about one-eighth of the country's land area. But last week the Minister of Energy and Resources, Jerry Brownlee, announced it wouldn't be so comprehensive in future. We've done a provisional stock take based on presently known information. Now we want to open up a tiny percentage of Schedule 4 to do 
more work in finding out what's there uh, and uh, looking at just what might be worthwhile mining in those particular areas. The government wants to remove Schedule 4 protection from five pieces of land covering a total of seven square kilometres. Although just a tiny fraction of the Schedule 4 lands, they include parts of Coromandel and Great Barrier Island. But one of the key pieces to be excluded is three square kilometres of the Paparoa National Park, just up the range from the Pike River Mine. Morris Mines, danger no entry. Getting closer. Modern underground mines may have the potential of leaving very small scars on the landscape, but they leave scars nonetheless, sometimes for hundreds of years. A good example of the impact is a small coal mine that was set up two decades back in an area of the foothills of the Paparoa Ranges that is now part of the National Park. I tramped there with a Reefton local. There it is. I'm Brenda Kay, I live in Reefton and I've taken an interest in this mine since there was the controversy about it about 20 years ago. So were you part of a fight against this mine 20 years ago? I was part of the discussion about it. I don't know whether we really fought. We kind of capitulated. <laughs> and it went ahead. But now this is all National Park. Yeah. That's a funny thing. Here we are standing in an old coal mine that's been abandoned. And around us is forest. And then we're in a clearing now. The sun's beaming down on us. And it's a sort of open area now with rock and gorse, really. You can see there's been so much in it, see that, that, that's probably been planted over there. But I thought there was going to be a lot more planting of trees around the place, but that hasn't happened. But yeah, this is just going to turn into a sort of gorsy jungle, the way it's going at the moment. It's beautiful beyond, you can see all the trees right up to the horizon. What sort of plant and animal life is there in this area, do you know? Well, we know for sure there's the, the kiwi, the great spotted kiwi, and lots of ones that were already well represented, like the, the wickers. And then there's things that we don't know about here because it hasn't really been explored all that deeply because people don't go here much. It's a wilderness. So right now they're talking about the possibility of opening this area back up to mining. So maybe gold or coal or something else. Do you think there would be support for that around here or would there be a bad reaction? What do you think? There'd be a lot of support and there'd be a lot of people that wouldn't like to say anything. <laughs> a lot of pressure around here not just tip the boat and say anything against progress. The environmental lobby and those representing the mining industry have split along predictable lines. But the public appears to have a more mixed reaction. A recent poll on TVNZ's close-up program found people evenly divided. When I talked to New Zealanders in iconic locations like Hanma Springs, most told me before they could decide if mining should be allowed, they wanted to know how it would be done. If they're going to open up great holes on the surface, no because you can't fix that. If it can be done underground, most probably. It depends on each individual location and what they're after and what their expected return is. We've still got to grow New Zealand's economy and whether we can rely totally on um, tourism for that or whether we really should be looking at some of the other resources that we've got. And I th think the latter, really. We have to look at them. So we can't say blanket, we shouldn't do it. The idea of trying to catch up with Australia is ridiculous because it's a completely different country with different resources. So I think it's a silly idea and we should really protect our national parks. For me, the decision would be made. 
If you make them national parks, they should be kept as national parks. Full stop. I think people come before gold. And the parks are there for people to use and to enjoy. And the bird life, wildlife, that's got to be preserved too, I think. Would that be preserved if there was open cast mining? I don't think so. We can't afford to let all that mineral sit under the ground and not least establish what is there as best we can. Coal is the most likely deposit able to be mined underground because it's still found in seams. But that's really only touted for the west coast around the Paparoa Ranges. In Coromandel and Great Barrier Island, it may be possible to mine underground if a big deposit was found of concentrated gold, silver or another metal like tin or tungsten. But if not, open pit mining remains the only economic way to retrieve a more dispersed metal in sufficient quantities to make it worthwhile. The government says it's confident the Resource Management Act applications process would stop that happening. And in the middle of last week, the Prime Minister specifically ruled out new open-cast mines in Coromandel or the island off its coast. So if open-cast mining isn't an option, what values attached to the minerals that could be recovered? Is there enough to be able to deliver the government's goal of what it calls a step change in the country's economy? So we think we have a clear choice. We can continue to muddle along, falling further behind countries that we like to consider ourselves similar to, we can set our sights, sights higher and create a country where people have the opportunity to live more fulfilling lives. Various figures are being bandied about and argued over. The government's basing its case on an updated version of work done a decade ago by a group of geologists, which estimated the total value of minerals still in the land at $140 billion, roughly the value of the total economy over a year. So this is a metallogenic map of New Zealand that was published in the 1990s. And it's, um, to test out these claims, I went to see one of the scientists who did the original mineral calculations, Tony Christie from the Crown Research Institute, GNS Science. Dr Christie says he stands by the estimates. For the early part of New Zealand's geological history, we were part of the Gondwana supercontinent, which included Australia and Antarctica. And therefore, our early rocks have equivalents in Australia. So we can trace some of our rocks to correlatives in eastern Australia, where there are fantastic mineral resources. Dr Christie says because New Zealand's been more volcanically active than Australia, it has at least and probably more mineral wealth per person and per square kilometre of land. He says the reason Australians think of themselves as a mineral-rich nation, and New Zealanders do not, is only because so much more exploration and mining has been done across the Tasman. For instance, there's been huge incentives in Australia that the various state governments and central government put lots of money into building up base information, doing aerial surveys and ground surveys to attract mineral explorers and to get them on the ground and, and doing work. Well, we've been doing a little bit here in New Zealand. We have our geological mapping program, of course. But to keep up with Australia, we need to do a lot more. But there's a catch. Geologists estimate that 70% of the metallic mineral deposits are found buried in the nation's wildest places. The conservation estate is areas of hilly country and mountainous country. And that tends to be where some of our older rocks are and our more prospective rocks for metals. And we are just talking about the metals here. 
And so that's why this is so much apparently in the conservation estate. The geology that's hosting these mineral deposits is also the geology that produces spectacular scenery in the forests and hills and mountains. Unlike in Australia, this creates an inescapable conflict between the land's conservation value above and the potential mineral wealth beneath. And any attempt to access that wealth brings with it many risks. Break away for five days with Air New Zealand and feel 100%. Call Traveland on 132. One of the strongest arguments being put against opening any national parks is another very large economic one, tourism. The chief executive of the Tourism Industry Association, Tim Cosser, says he's written to the Prime Minister, who also holds the tourism portfolio, to warn him of the risks to New Zealand's clean, green image. I think our brand took a step forward with Lord of the Rings. I think 100% Pure as a brand was always going to be successful, but Lord of the Rings sort of launched it onto the world stage in a way that our marketing dollars never would have been able to do. And I think that put us in a market position that most other countries envied. Is that brittle? Yeah, it's brittle because we're in a very competitive international marketplace and most countries strive to develop their brand, spend millions, hundreds of million dollars trying to achieve it, and we've got one. The value of tourism generated from the conservation estate is estimated at $20 billion, about 10 times the size of the mining industry. Mr Costa says his phone's been running hot with calls from all sides, from operators already dreaming of mine tours and new infrastructure, all the way to outraged ecotourist operators. The ecotourism sector's growing quickly and a loan estimated to be worth $7 billion. So what we've got here is red mistletoe. It has beautiful red flowers in the springtime. And this On is the way on. back from the West Coast, I dropped in to visit one of its pioneers, Jerry McSweeney, who runs wilderness lodges in Fiordland and Arthur's Pass. Yeah, when we talk about national parks, we, we talk about sort of restoring them quickly and planting all these things once we've sort of dug the minerals out. And we forget just how old some of these forests are, that this is a salary pine, a toata, and it's probably about 500 years old. And it's only about, you know, four or five metres high. And so they just grow incredibly slowly on these poor old soils. If you add to that the sort of acid-leached rocks that you get out of hard rock mining, things will grow even more slowly. So in a landscape like this that you, you can make a have an impact with a road or something that will last for an enormous amount of time. Few tourists might actually see any future mines firsthand, but Jerry McSweeney says the plans are a real threat to New Zealand's international reputation. Tourism, it's so much about the heart and the head working in combination, particularly where your country has taken the, the brand of 100% pure New Zealand and said, this is what we are. You know, we're not a place you come to do shopping. We're a place of grandeur, beauty and naturalness, which is really what the rest of the world used to look like. And I think that's why, unless there's an incredibly good reason, I think it's absolute madness to be damaging that image. The comments I heard from international tourists in the South Island, like this young Tasmanian man, tend to back up his fears. It just depends where you put them, I suppose. You know, within common sense, you put it somewhere, you know, it's all right, probably be OK, but... You put it in a national park, you know, right next to a tourist centre, I mean, it'll get noticed and people will take it home to, you know, the corners of the earth and tell all their friends. 
But there are other threats too, even to jewellers working precious metals being mined and selling their products to tourists or overseas buyers. Ash Hilton, a Nelson-based jeweller, already offers his customers the choice between regular gold and what he calls ethical gold, which he buys from a guy who mines the noble metal from old West Coast tailings. Mr Hilton says despite the technological advances, the gold industry is still very dirty. The gold price is just rising and rising and rising. And as the price of that material gets higher, it means that places and types of mining that weren't economical before become economical. These industries may not be as dirty in the actual mechanisms of it, but you know their effect and the spread and where they're actually taking it from is getting so much more that it, you know, which is worse. Ash Hilton says digging gold out of a national park would end up undermining his business. I think it really goes to the heart of what I do because, I mean, people make a choice. Someone from the States wants a, a gold ring off me. You know, they're making that decision to, to buy my product, I believe, because of what New Zealand stands for and what New Zealand signifies, whether it's actually the environmental beach gold that I use or if it's just gold that I buy from a from a New Zealand supplier which is mined in New Zealand and Australia, the worth of that gold is really what they put on it and New Zealand's image is integral to that. All this talk about economic value risks losing sight of the real reason national parks and other reserves were set aside from development in the first place. Tongariro National Park was New Zealand's first when it was gifted to the nation in 1887. At the park's centennial celebrations, the then Prime Minister David Longy spoke powerfully about the legacy it and other parks would carry. Let us remember the greatness of spirit of Tehuhu Tukino, which led him a hundred years ago to give the sacred mountains to all of New Zealand. He rests with the ancestors who have passed our heritage on to us for safekeeping. I restate our intention to encourage the use and enjoyment of the parks by all New Zealanders and visitors to New Zealand. What I also emphasise is the government's continuing intention to encourage those to visit the parks to respect the land and to understand the importance of passing it unspoiled to future generations. Despite the gift which began the legacy, the voice of Māori is rarely heard in debates about how the parks should be used. While in the South Island, I called on the iwi Naitahu and its manager of tribal affairs, David Perinara O'Connell. They do start to become jewels through definition of, of what they stand for and the, the places where, in essence, um, development hasn't gone and so the values from our perspective retreat into those things and so everything else is given up and we get these, these places that retain importance from a cultural perspective. Mr Perenara O'Connell says national parks are now an important part of New Zealand's cultural makeup, and there should be a good strong debate about the merits of tinkering with them. A Ngaitahu world view and approach and our tribal whakatauki, Mōtato, Mōkauri, Amuriake nei is you know, for us and our, our children after us. So being always conscious of the decisions that we're going to make today, what impact that will have on my children, my children's children, out to five or six generations later. And they're conscious decisions and conscious things we think of as a community when contemplating use of resources or interaction with resources. Learned through experience over many, many hundreds of years. From the beginning, National Park status limited development to public amenities like campsites and mountain huts.
If the plan goes ahead, it'll be the first time since Schedule 4 was created 13 years ago that conservation lands pulled out of it rather than added in. Conservation groups like Forest and Birds see this as the ultimate betrayal and the beginning of a larger project. Here we are opening up the idea that you can remove land from Schedule 4. Once they start removing it, they'll be lining up to remove others in the future. I mean, the very idea of this half a million hectares nearly have been surveyed is for exactly that reason. They're saying, we'll start with the smaller amount we'll take out, but we have plans to take out a lot more. That's why we're surveying this half a million hectares, to see which bits of those we can take out too. So there's no question it's the thinning of the wedge, and we, that's one of the reasons we'll say no. Kevin Hackwell says even if a massive gold deposit was discovered tomorrow at the top of Coromandel or in Mount Aspiring, it should be left there because of the natural value of a pristine nature area. Groups like his have already begun what could become a test of wills with the government. If it ends up uh, putting people in front of bulldozers, we'll do it. Forest and Bird you know, has been around for nearly 90 years and we've had a major part in almost every single one of these areas becoming protected. When we started, there were just a few national parks. You know, we're going to fight for it. You know, we've fought for these areas in the past. We'll fight to protect them into the future. There's been a strong local reaction from people in some of the areas proposed for mining. On Great Barrier Island, the chair of the community board says he expects hell to freeze over before mining takes place there. Community activists in Coromandel have promised a fierce and relentless backlash. Even the minister, Jerry Brownlee, admits mining protected areas is not ideal. Look, I think it's self-evident that if New Zealand was a very, very wealthy country, uh, we wouldn't be doing this. But it is also patently evident that we are not, and we have to do some things uh, to, to turn that situation around. The executive director of the Minerals Industry Association, Doug Gordon, says he knows it's a difficult debate, but it's essential it be discussed. The reality, the natural reality of the situation is that the conservation estate eclipses or overlays the mining estate. So we can pretend that it's not there, like we've been doing, and we can pretend that the only thing that's valuable there is biodiversity, but that's not the reality. So the challenge is, how do we come to grips with that? And the answer is, we have a debate about this. Now, when all said and done, the outcome of that debate could be not too different to what it is now, maybe. We may still decide, when we've got the information about the minerals and the information about the biodiversity, to still uh, have those Schedule Four areas as off-limits. I say face the challenge. The jeweller Ash Hilton says the industry's at risk of cutting off its nose to spite its face. Mr Hilton says the day is coming when the fair trade label will be extended from coffee and chocolate to precious resources like gold. OK, you're going to mine and you're going to get a, a short-term gain, you know, if that's five or ten or even 50 years, but if you're really looking at a, a sustainable long-term goal for the New Zealand precious metal industry, you know, to be able to have a product that we can charge a premium for because we have made that choice not to, you know, that, that certain places have a higher value than what's on the ground, then to me that's a true long-term goal and, and, and true long-term value. The government's consultation period runs until the beginning of May and all sides are expecting there'll be a mountain of submissions. That Radio New Zealand Insight programme was written and presented by Ian Telfer. Technical production was by Leanne Smith and it was produced by Sue Ingram.